In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Industrial society and its future. For those of you that are not aware of Mr. Kaczynski, he was the Unabomber. And Harvard graduate, graduate of, uh, I believe he was in the Harvard LSD studies as well. Mathematician, turned in by his brother. And he had some fascinating ideas on the future of technology. And that's where we're going to get into his philosophy and get into some of his ideas and kind of go through and point out some areas in which he may have been correct and some ways in which he may have not been correct. So it should be fun. I, I, I find his writings to be peculiar in their authenticity. It seems they're very genuine. What he's saying is something he truly believes. And he presents a lot of evidence to back it up. And it's a, it is a angle that is rarely spoken of. So without getting too much further into the weeds, let's just go ahead and start it here. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries. But they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world, to physical suffering as well and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage 
on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering. And it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. There's a lot in there, right? Let's just go over a little bit of it here. Would you agree that it has destabilized society? I would think so. The ever-widening gap in education, finance, literacy, health, clearly has been radicalized during the Industrial Revolution. Has it subjected human beings to indignities? Well, I think we all have added to that. I'm talking to you on an iPhone. An iPhone's made at Foxconn in China where people live in the buildings like dorms and they have nets outside their dwellings so people don't jump off the roof and kill themselves or so that when people jump off the roof they land in a net it is to be fair quite unfulfilling and I think a lot of people are Subjected to indignities. Although it's not just in the third world. I mean, increasingly in advanced societies in the United States, people are treated like cogs and wheels and they are treated as if they are numbers instead of people. It has definitely inflicted severe damage on the natural world. And it's, it's odd, it's, you know, the, the promise of tech is that it will, it will make the world better. However, there has been continued development. However, the, it has worsened the situation. I mean, it, clear cutting a forest. You could argue that fracking has made us energy independent. However, it's also polluted a lot of water. The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful period of adjustment, and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. I think we're at those crossroads right now. Are we going to see the industrial technological system survive or is it going to break down? If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results, or its breakdown will be. So, if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. Now here is what Kaczynski was advocating for. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden, 
or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that. But we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. In this article, we give attention to only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system, such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. For example, since there are well-developed environmental degradation, I'm sorry, since there are well-developed environmental and wilderness movements, we have written very little about environmental degradation or the destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. Okay, so just remember, I'm reading here. I'm going to give you some commentary. Of course, I don't endorse all of these thoughts. However, I think his thoughts are important enough to lay out there. The psychology of modern leftism. Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. But what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could practically have been identified with socialism. Today the movement is fragmented, and it is not clear who can properly be called a leftist. When we speak of leftists in this article, in this article, in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay, and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not everyone who is associated with one of these movements is a leftist. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much a movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussions of leftist psychology. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish. But there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to aptly Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings 
of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. Feelings of inferiority. Has it, has, is there a person out there that's never felt inferior? I think that's part of the human condition, right? I mean, it seems like how everybody has that feeling. It just comes down to how you deal with that feeling. It's important to know that there's always going to be someone better than you. There's always going to be someone smarter than you. There's always going to be someone working harder than you. And that, but that also probably means that you're better than some people, that you're working harder than other people, that you're smarter than other people. A good rule of thumb is to think that you're probably not the best and you're definitely not the worst. You're probably somewhere in the middle. And yeah, you're inferior in a lot of ways. Just the vast number of people on this planet. And if you want to try to find a support group because you're so inferior, like, stop trying to find a support group and start getting better at things. Find something you love to do and get good at it. That's all you got to do. You'll, you'll decrease those feelings of inferiority. By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits. Low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. I would agree. I think that's accurate. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him, or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has an inferiority feelings of low self-esteem. Have you ever met anybody like that? Like no matter what you say, they take it as like a a slur against them. Oh, are you saying this? Oh, so what you're saying is this. Remember that article? Did you guys ever see the interview with Jordan Peterson and the young lady from uh, the, the European lady over there? They were like in this debate and she just kept trying to frame what he was saying is, so what you're saying is, so what you're saying is, so what you're saying is, and he's like, no, no, that's what you're saying. I didn't say any of that. What you're trying to do is just take what I said, completely change it around and then throw it back to me like it was my words. He's like, that's a complete logical fallacy. It's a fad. It's a, it's a fascinating debate actually. And I think it underscores what this gentleman's talking about. Actually, I'll try to I'll try to put a link in the show notes so you guys can check it out. It's it's fascinating to see an example of exactly what this guy's talking about. And she would totally fit the category of a leftist. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. Remember Rachel Dazel, like the white girl? She was in charge of like the whole... 
Africa. She was in charge of like a, a minority group somewhere, but she wasn't even a minority. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms oriental, handicapped, or chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person, or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude, or fellow. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. Leftish, leftish anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the word primitive with non-literate. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftist anthropologists. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black, ghetto, dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from privileged strata of society. Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment and comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper class families. That's fascinating to think about. I was recently watching a video and it was a it was a panel of people from the World Health Organization and they were all white people every one of them and they were talking about development in the United States and this gentleman from Harvard who was a white guy probably middle mid 50s I don't know how much Harvard professors make, but let's say he's making, he's got to be making over 100000 He's probably has some side gigs where he goes and speaks. He had mentioned multiple books that he's written. Let's say he's doing three hundred k a year. And what this gentleman was talking about was how unfair it is for white people to have such privileged positions. Okay, now think about what I just said. Here's a white guy teaching at a prestigious school, making tons of money, selling books, talking about how unfair it is for white people to do what he does. Now, he never once in that discussion advocated stepping down. He never once said, you know what, I should move aside and allow someone else to have my position. What he said was that uneducated white people, people that don't teach at Harvard, people that don't write books, people that don't have his level of privilege, but are white, 
these people are white nationalists and these people are all racist and they're the problem with America. And it was, it was like I had to watch it a few times. Like just this guy's, it was like the ultimate irony. Like here's this guy that is saying to the world, hey, white people are the huge problem. They have all this fucking privilege. And this is the guy that had the most. And instead of taking a look in the mirror and saying, well, dude, why don't you step aside then? He was just aiming all his anger towards people in potentially like poor neighborhoods or people that had lower incomes or maybe people that didn't have as much education as he had. And so it it just seemed to me to be part of part of the problem. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed to me to be it was just odd. It was really odd. Back to the book. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak, defeated, repellent, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings. But it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. We do not mean to suggest that Women, Indians, minorities are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist psychology. That's an interesting point. To see these other groups, to see a lot of other groups as inferior, I mean, that's like you, if you feel you have to protect people, then you feel like you're superior to them. Like, I should help out these people because I'm better than them. You know, it's, it's, it's a logical fallacy, right? Feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and as capable as men. Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. Let me just pause here for a minute. This is not my, like, I'm not saying, I'm reading this book. These are not my thoughts. My thoughts are the commentary that goes by, but just for anybody listening to me, the word, all the words you're hearing are not mine. I'm reading this book, so don't judge me too hard on this, all right? Leftists need to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West, etc., clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them. Or at best, he grudgingly admits that they exist. Whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus, it is clear that these faults are not the leftist's real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. 
Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, etc. play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, take care of them. He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside he feels like a loser. Art forms that appeal to modern leftist intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat, and despair, or else they take an orgiastic tone, throwing off rational control as if there were no hope of accomplishing anything through rational calculation, and all that were left were to immerse oneself in the sensation of the moment. Modern leftish philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility, and to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power. More importantly, the leftist hates science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true, i.e. successful, superior, and other beliefs as false, i.e. failed, inferior. The leftist feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it is not his fault but society's because he has not been brought up properly. That's kind of the whole epigenetics debate, right? The leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a braggart, an egoist, a bully, a self-promoter, a ruthless competitor. This kind of person has has not wholly lost faith in himself. He has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth, but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong, and his efforts to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior. But the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable. Hence the collectivism of the leftist. He can feel strong only as a member of a large organization or a mass movement with which he identifies himself. Notice the masochistic tendency of leftist tactics. Tactics. 
Leftists protest by laying down in front of vehicles. They intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them. These tactics may often be effective, but many leftists use them not as means to an end, but because they prefer masochistic tactics. Self-hatred is a leftist trait. Leftists may claim that their activism is motivated by compassion or by moral principles, and moral principle does play a role for the leftist in the over-socialized type. But compassion and moral principle cannot be the main motives for leftist activism. Hostility is too prominent a component of leftist behavior. So is the drive for power. Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be of benefit to the people whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. For example, if one believes that affirmative action is good for black people, does it make sense to demand affirmative action in hostile or dogmatic terms? Obviously, it would be more productive to take a diplomatic and conciliatory approach that would make at least verbal and symbolic concessions to white people who think that affirmative action discriminates against them. But leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional needs. Helping black people is not their real goal. Instead, race problems serve as an excuse for them to express their own hostility and frustrated need for power. In doing so, they actually harm black people because the activist hostile attitude toward the white majority tends to intensify race hatred. If our society had no social problems at all, the leftists would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. We emphasize that the foregoing does not pretend to be an accurate description of everyone who might be considered a leftist. It is only a rough indication of a general tendency of leftism. So that is the beginning of the industrial society and its future. And we've covered feelings of inferiority. The next section is going to be about over-socialization. And, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. As, as we get further and further into the arguments of Theodore Ted Kaczynski, you're going to see how this particular personality type operates in the world of technology. And it's it's fascinating to just to dig down and, and look, this guy was a like I said, I don't agree with everything he said, but the guy's not dumb. This guy was operating on a level that most of us will never have the capacity to do so. And sometimes people that are really fucking smart are really fucking scary. And that's where I would put this guy. Like, you know, There's some uncomfortable truths. There's a lot of things that we're going to get into here that people are not going to want to hear. They're not going to want to believe. And I am not here to tell you what this guy's saying is true. What I'm here to do is just expose you to this guy's writings. So, Theodore Ted Kaczynski, Technological Slavery, Volume 1. We are in the beginnings of industrial society in its future. That's all we got for today. Be back at you guys tomorrow. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. 
Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.